You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. I'm Peyton. I'm a high schooler in student ministries, and I'm going to be reading today's scripture. It's Luke 6, 12 through 19, if you want to open your Bibles with me. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Thank you, Peyton. All right, Parkview, you ready to celebrate? Are you sure? I'm not convinced. All right. All right. Yesterday at the packing party for Samaritan's Purse, ready for this? 1,864 boxes were packed and are ready to be sent. All right. Good job. You were ready to celebrate. I didn't, I missed it. You were ready. I like it. Great news. Thank you for your faithfulness in that. And the gospel goes with those. Isn't that wonderful? What a great opportunity. Just to clarify, I realized uh, uh, it, it became apparent to me that not everybody knows where I go when I leave after I'm done preaching. So it's not that I don't want to be with you or anything like that. I do go from here and I preach over at East Campus. And then I get there right after they start, and then when I'm done preaching there, I leave here, or leave there and come back here and uh, preach the second service. So please don't be offended if you don't see me after the service. I'm not avoiding you. Well, some of you I am, but anyway, uh, I'm just kidding. Well, maybe not. Anyway, um, just wanted you to be aware of that. So we've had a neat couple of weeks here with uh, Bob Blinko here for our Global Outreach Weekend, and we're so thankful for how that went. And I hope you were here last week for Kevin Complin and for having everybody together, all the services together. It was a neat time. If you did not join us for that or you didn't jump online, make sure you go and watch that service. Uh, Kevin's message was fantastic. And actually, his conclusion works its way beautifully into today's message as well. I'm excited to continue our journey into Luke again, and we're going to do this for two more Sundays, and then we're going to start our Christmas series. And our Christmas series beginning on December 3rd would be a great one to invite unbelievers to. It would be a chance to walk through the incarnation, the purpose of, of Jesus taking on flesh. Remember our theme verse for Luke, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We've been seeing how Jesus is proclaiming and proving his authority. And it's creating incredible tension because in many ways he's doing that which is so opposite to the ways in which the leaders of that day functioned within the religious environment. And so Jesus is really creating this reversal of sorts. 
And today we'll see that through diligent prayer, Jesus invokes the Heavenly Father's guidance. He invites unlikely candidates to be his disciples and introduces them to the ministry. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we just pause to uh, come before you and lift our adoration before you. You are worthy of it, and you are holy and mighty. And Father, we delight to gather to sing your praises. And Father, we're just uh, thankful this morning as we consider uh, the many donations that were made to send uh, gifts and your gospel around the world through Samaritan's Purse. And so we just ask that, that your power, your spirit would move with those and it would bless those children and the families that they would go to and that many would come to faith in Christ as a result. Father, use these, we pray. Lord, for our time together now, we just commit it to you, and we ask that you would just guide us. Lord, help us to see what we need to see, to hear what we need to hear, and respond accordingly. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke 6, verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. In these days, it's, it's the days when ministry has begun and now tensions have arisen as a result. Uh, they're intensifying and Luke has made it clear that this opposition exists and it's relatively uh, heavy in nature. So we see that through diligent prayer, I, I want you to, to consider with me what an all-night prayer time might have been like. I don't know if you've done those yourself or tried to do them, uh, but um, consider what this was like for Jesus as he goes and, and, and he isolates himself and he prays all night. And what did that consist of? Uh, we can't ignore certainly uh, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray when, when um, they asked him about prayer. So maybe it consisted of some of those elements. And I thought we would say the Lord's Prayer together today. I put the words on the screen. It's okay. You can pray with your eyes open because I know there's versions of it. So let's just pray this one together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We know from the elements that we see here in the Lord's Prayer that prayer should involve praise and worship. It's, it's acknowledging the divine qualities of God the Father. It should involve confession. Forgive us, right? It, it should involve supplication, making requests. You know, Lord, give us our daily bread. Now, as we think about Jesus' prayer time, obviously, Jesus has no personal need to confess anything, does he? If you are without sin, what are you confessing? Uh, I want you to think about your own prayer life for a minute. Uh, how much time of your prayer time is spent in confession? And, and maybe are you more prone to pray prayers of confession when you're asking God for something? 
And God, I know you probably shouldn't give this to me, but, but would you just forgive me for all those things? And, 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 and God, I, I'm sorry about that. And, and would you, by the way, do this? God, forgive me for my sin of, of greed or, or my sin of lust or, or, or forgive me for my outbursts of anger or, or the gossip that I do. Forgive me for ignoring the opportunities that I had to, to do this ministry in your name or to, or to proclaim you to, to other people who need it. Or forgive me for not taking those thoughts of mine captive sooner. Know that for, for Jesus, no time is spent confessing his sins. He was without sin. But I might suggest that he may have been uh, praying, Father, forgive them. You know, later on, even on the cross, he would, he would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's this intercession. It's this intervening prayer. The Old Testament greats did that on behalf of Israel. Moses has to stand in the gap for Israel, doesn't he? Think of even Amos. Amos asks God for a pardon of Israel. Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Amos 7. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you understand that, that he came from heaven, he takes on flesh, he lives without sin, he, he ministers, he, he goes to the cross, he dies on your behalf. He rises again in victory and invites you to be his child. And if you've accepted that and have been walking with him for any length of time, no doubt there has been points in your life where you have come to uh, having to make uh, serious decisions and it has commanded prayer. You've come to a place where you can't imagine not praying about it. The answer is so uncertain to you, and the matter is of grave importance, and you find that you can't even function without prayer. I believe that in those times there's something wonderful because it's in those occasions that we recognize the limits of our own understanding. We, we come to a, a reality of it because, let's face it, sometimes we can become pretty fond of ourselves. We can be proud of the knowledge that we've acquired or proud of how we're living. And these, these times of coming to uh, an uncertainty really are good for us because they serve as a, a humility-resetting event in our lives. Because in that moment, we, we, we cannot begin to comprehend all the angles and factors in the decisions we have to make. You know, we can reason things out. We can do pros and cons and, and kind of try to get familiar with things. And, and we, we process that, right? But the Lord's ways often defy our simple logic. And we can become overwhelmed and stressed with the idea of decisions or, or whatever is before us. Yet we can find great solace and peace in leaving it in the Lord's hands saying, thy will be done. Uh, think of some of the scenarios that put us in, in situations like that. I mean, we, maybe it's choosing, choosing schools or, or a career path, a spouse, 
Do, do we move or do we stay? Do we purchase? Do we rent? Do we speak up or do we remain silent? Do we go to the mission field or do we serve right here? It has been my experience that the Lord answers these prayers in various ways. Sometimes he answers them because circumstances change. Early in my ministry days, I had an opportunity to, uh, to do ministry that sounded so neat to me because uh, I considered it a great opportunity, um, at least I thought it was, to serve with a close friend of mine and to serve under a man I, I admired tremendously. And, and I remember praying, Lord, your will be done. But in my head, I, I already knew what the Lord's will was. This had to be right. It was interesting because in our prayer time this morning, those words were spoken, that, that thought of, we say thy will be done, but really, we know what we think it is. And I prayed for the Lord's will, and it seemed like a no-brainer, and, and interesting things happened, and that door slammed shut. And I remember being so disappointed. I'm going, Lord, why not? What was wrong with this scenario? It was perfect. And I, I'll admit, I was depressed Turns out that ministry went into a season of great struggle that lasted more than a decade. And the Lord protected my wife and I from that. Circumstances may change. Uh, other times, the answer comes through the wisdom that God provides through others. Proverbs 15, says, Plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Other times, the Holy Spirit just changes our hearts. Some of you have heard me share a story of when my wife and I had gone to Sarasota, Florida. We had gone there to candidate to be a youth pastor there. That was a role I was trying to get. And uh, within being there uh, just a few hours, we knew there was no way. We just said, nope. And it was almost funny to us. And we were staying in the home of the chairman of the church, and it was Friday night through Tuesday. Uh, I preached on Sunday morning. The church voted unanimously to hire us, and they're like, what's your answer? And we're like, we'll pray about it and let you know. And we had to just kind of keep going through the motions while we were there. We got on the airplane. We were so relieved to be out of there because we did not want anything to do with it. And we flew from Sarasota back to California where we were living. And somewhere across the middle of the United States, the Spirit worked on both of our hearts. And as the plane was descending to, to land, I turned to Charmaine and I said, we're supposed to go, aren't we? And she said, yep. And then we went, ah. Oh. Sometimes he just works that way. And you know, we would have missed out on some incredible things that God was doing. For me, there is great peace in being able to say, thy will be done, and trust it to God to work it out in his time. Notice I said his time. So far in Luke's gospel, we've already seen that, that Jesus prioritizes prayer, getting alone to pray. And Luke tells us he's been praying all night. So through diligent prayer, Jesus invokes the Heavenly Father's guidance. He invokes the Heavenly Father's guidance. We draw this conclusion from what Jesus did next. Look at verse 13. 
And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Questions still remain, and and honestly, very hard questions. Okay, did it really require him to pray all night? We're talking likely 10 hours. Can you imagine that? I mean, he he goes on the hill and and he's praying and and the the sun sets and it starts to get cool. And he's trying to stay warm. Maybe he's moving around and it gets cooler and cooler as the night comes on. And then as morning comes, there's a little dew landing and he's a little wet now. and, And now the sun's rising. He's been praying all this time. But why does Jesus need to pray if he's divine? And that could spring us into another question. Does Jesus tap into his deity to live out his humanity? Was the extended prayer time just simply necessary to set an example for you and I? Certainly Jesus is demonstrating to us that greater decisions require more prayer. He comes out of this night of prayer. He's ready to announce his selection of the apostles. Look with me at verse 14. He chooses Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I think we can find additional evidence suggesting that that Jesus did certain things to help us gain perspective and understanding. Later, when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to the cross, he had taken Peter, James, and John with him. And remember, they couldn't stay awake. They're sleeping. But can you imagine the impression it left on them as they looked back on that night? Jesus, in this intense time of stress, models going to the Father for strength and submitting to his will. Again, did Jesus have to pray the whole night? Did he even need to pray at all? This is God in flesh. Answering that question is not, as, not that simple, and it's also not our purpose today. The kenosis of Jesus has been a great source of debate and strong opinions. It comes down to defining what is meant in what we read in Philippians 2. Look with me. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, but taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The, the critical question here is, is what is meant by emptied himself? Certainly taking on flesh restricts his omnipresence. But what other, about other divine character, characteristics like omniscience? If Jesus needs to invoke the the Heavenly Father's guidance and the the Spirit's help to choose the the apostles, does that mean that his omniscience was restricted as well? I love how Hughes puts it. Jesus was a human being just like us, except that he was without sin. And though he was God, he placed the exercise of his attributes, his omniscience, for example, at the discretion of the Father. Thus he did not possess all knowledge, and his unaided knowledge was not sufficient 
to know who to choose. That's a reasonable line of thinking, but there are varying views on this. But, but understand, we know that the Father certainly gave his input. We can know that by going to, the, to John's Gospel in chapter 17. When Jesus prays for his disciples, Jesus says to the Father this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, or yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Jesus viewed them as given to him from the Heavenly Father. God the Father was active in this. We know that. But whatever the reason, Jesus prays all night. It should certainly tell us that he had a far greater understanding of the value and power of prayer. Can that just get your attention for a minute? That Jesus had a greater understanding of the value and power of prayer. Jesus modeled it. Through diligent prayer, Jesus invokes the Heavenly Father's guidance and invites unlikely candidates to be his disciples. By now, there's no question that Jesus does things different than the leaders of the day. No question about it. Jesus does not go to the synagogue and, and gather, gather the resumes of the best and brightest Hebrew students and then send emails to their references. Right? He doesn't seek out the respected priests or teachers or of the law. All of those whom he chose, with the exception of, ironically, Judas Iscariot, were unknown and quite ordinary. They were simple, common Galileans. They were essentially unknown outside of their small circles. They were tremendously ordinary. Again, this must be reviewed as, uh, as, as a reversal. It's counterintuitive to the culture. These would be the 12 that Jesus would pour his life into. Uh, they would be the ones who would obtain the title apostle, the role that they would be trained and equipped and empowered for. Now, you and I hear the word disciple, and we think of the 12, right? Uh, but these would be with him everywhere he went. And in reality, there were many disciples. A disciple is someone who follows another or another's way of life and submits to the teaching and training of that person. However, these select 12 would be elevated to the role of apostle. They would become the future leaders of the church without Judas, of course. Given a new title, apostle, messengers, they are the sent out ones, witnesses of Jesus, authorized and sent out by him. And understand, they're divinely chosen even Judas Iscariot, who's later replaced by Matthias. We must not allow ourselves to believe that the calling of Judas was errant. Thinking that maybe if Jesus would have just prayed longer, he wouldn't have made a mistake with Judas Iscariot. Don't, don't go down that line of thinking. Also, these would be the leaders that would face opposition along with Jesus. They would go through, and the 12 are selected and appointed out of the group of disciples that are already present. And they're people that are already familiar with and following Jesus to some degree. And, and, and 
the further message and mission of Jesus is being organized into this group with some having this extra training. Now, let me state the obvious but ever so important fact here. Jesus did not pick perfect people. He didn't pick perfect people. He chose those who would follow, who would learn, who would adopt his mission as their very own. Now, I want to get personal here for a minute, and then we'll get back to the text. I don't know what your view is of yourself. Maybe you're one that you kind of lean toward being fond of yourself and your abilities. You're proud of things. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and, and you think very little of yourself. You're, you're critical of yourself. But consider the ones that Jesus chose. Note that the gospel use, Gospels use varying names for, for these men. Uh, Jesus chooses the sons of thunder, James and John. Likely high-strung and maybe loud and enthusiastic. And maybe Sons of Thunder was sort of a humorous name for them that every time Jesus referred to them as that, the guys laughed. I don't know. Yet both members of the inner circle with Simon Peter. And Simon Peter, this big personality, impulsive and bold, and he, he asked Jesus if he can walk on water. And he makes these bold promises to be with Jesus no matter what. And then he would deny Jesus when the pressure was on. Andrew, the former disciple of John the Baptizer, perhaps timid, he stays in the background and behind the shadow of his famous brother, Simon Peter. Philip, one of the first to follow, and he invites others like Nathaniel to follow. And Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, he's listed here, a skeptic at first, but then convinced by Jesus as Jesus has knowledge about him. And you've got Levi, or Matthew, the, the tax collector, hated by his fellow Jews. He hears the words, follow me, and he gave up everything and follows. You've got Thomas, known as the doubting one, right? That's how we always remember him. He, he needs proof that Jesus was risen from the death. But he demonstrated deep faith and commitment when he was willing to follow Jesus into Judea at great risk. You've got James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less, the one who we know the very least about. We know his name, and we know that he was present in the upper room after the ascension of Christ. And we've got Simon the Zealot, and we really know nothing beyond his name and this title of Zealot. And he may have been one of the actual zealots who formerly revolted against the Roman authority. Or he may have just been zealous in nature. And you've got Judas, son of James, or Jude, Matthew and Mark call him Thaddeus. And he may, have been preferred, he may have preferred to be called Thaddeus after Judas Iscariot's betrayal. And then you've got Judas himself, the betrayer. Betrays Jesus with a kiss in exchange for silver. He chooses them out of obscurity to follow him. Some fishermen a tax collector for Rome, a zealot against Rome. Do you think that wasn't a dynamic duo? Imagine those two being in the same room. They would have been arch enemies. Must have been fun. Even a betrayer. None were famous. None were wealthy. None were admired. Not one a scribe, a ruler, or a priest. Being perfect is not a requirement 
for discipleship. Jesus, with the guidance of the Father, chooses them out of obscurity and uses them in tremendous ways. You were in Acts not too long ago. Remember Acts chapter 4, verse 13? Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uneducated, common men, astonishing the watching world. Ordinary people called by God to do that which it was extraordinary. And then we look ahead. In Revelation 21, verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with, with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On east, three gates. Uh, on the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. How amazing. From, from ordinary country folk, dare, dare I say, to having their names on the very foundation of the new Jerusalem, the eternal foundation. Through diligent prayer, Jesus invokes the Heavenly Father's guidance and he invites unlikely candidates to be his disciples and introduces them to ministry. Look with me at verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowds sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. This is a mountaintop experience that, that just keeps going. Imagine these 12 newly appointed apostles uh, trying to process what they've just experienced. They've just had this amazing rabbi chose, uh, choose them, right? And if you're one of them, you've seen him do the impossible. His teaching is incredible, and it silences his critics. He draws massive crowds. He miraculously heals and delivers people from their oppression and their suffering. And he just chose you to be an apprentice. And the first lesson is to get started by ministering to a great crowd. You physically come down from the mountain to a level place, and there it just gets better. You and I know of occasions when people go to great lengths to do something, right? Maybe staying up all night to be the first one to buy tickets for something. Or, or camping outside of a department store for Black Friday deals. I want to check your mental health, but anyway. <laughs> Imagine this. Some of these people have come from nearby, but some of these people have come from 70-plus miles. Imagine walking to Moline or even further just to hear someone speak. 
And these 12 get to jump right into this ministry scene where these people have come from all these places and they're watching people set free from demons and and where people are rushing in and pushing forward just to get close to Jesus, just to touch him. Because Luke tells us that power came out from Jesus and healed them all. And as one of the 12, you're no longer a face in the crowd. You are side by side with Jesus, assisting in the ministry. Do you think any of those apostles slept that night? Were they just laying awake, stunned? Considering what had just happened to them and and what they've been invited into. Even saying, Lord, why would you choose me? No doubt any one of them could have given Jesus a list of reasons why they weren't the right choice. Yet he chose them and used them. And you and I have got to stop here and say, okay, what's the relevance of this account to you and I today? What, what does it matter? And it's pretty simple because God still calls and uses ordinary people. Oswald Chambers says this, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced their dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Isn't that great? It means we, we, we come to him empty-handed. I want to get real here for a minute as I wrap up and just say, do you have a favorite go-to excuse for not taking the next step in your faith? God, you cannot ask any more of me because here's the deal, I'm not a leader. Or God, you can't ask any more of me because you know that I don't know enough. Or God, you can't ask any more of me because you know that I've got the wrong personality. Or God, you know that that I can't do any more because you know I'm too busy. Or God, I I did my time of serving. I did that. I've been there and done that. Can I I just say that many of us in church today have reduced faith and, and discipleship in Jesus to going to church, living a moral life, and biblical knowledge. All great things. I'm not criticizing them. They're essential. Sometimes we reduce discipleship down to just, you know, okay, I'm just going to live a certain way and go to church and, and read my Bible. But what might God be calling you to step up and do that if you don't, you're missing out? Are you missing out on a deeper, more vibrant relationship with Jesus because you run and hide behind your excuses? Tell me those 12 wouldn't have had their own excuses. Reasons. These disciples were pulled out of comfort and they were pulled out of familiarity, but they were pulled into a tremendous life of ministry.
that so pulled them in that they were willing to die horrible deaths, continuing to proclaim that Jesus who was who he said he was. I'm going to close in prayer as my time is gone. It just seems appropriate because Jesus makes this decision after going to prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are a source for knowledge, for discernment, for comfort, for union, for direction, for power. And we access that through prayer. Lord, forgive us for those times when we're too dependent on our own understanding and our own strengths and we don't realize that we've got to come to you for the answers, for the power, for the direction. And Lord, may we come to you with a spirit of saying, thy will be done. Would you direct us and lead us to where you want us to be? Because we realize that Jesus, if you needed to go to the Father, then how much more do we? So Father, we're thankful that we can come to you in prayer with Jesus as our intercessor, our mediator, the one who allows us to come, our great high priest. And Father, would you teach us to pray and teach us to trust you, following the example of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.